Hello. If you were a fish, would you have a concept of water? When something is all around us, we can't see it anymore. It's just simply part of the world we take for granted. This, in one and a half generations, is what has happened to the internet. To ask you whether the internet is a good or a bad thing in your life, would it be like asking you whether people are a good thing or a bad thing? Yet this phenomenon that has become the platform for large swathes of our lives, it's not a natural thing. It's evolved, and its evolution both transcends its origins, but also carries some of the attributes and the flaws imprinted at its birth. Given that we can no longer separate ourselves from the internet, exploring the story of its early days and its early pioneers can be revelatory especially when that story is told by a brilliant and searingly honest author. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Marie Leconte, author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hi, Marie, how are you? Hello, thanks for having me. I'm very well, thank you. So we always go into these conversations like we do in a kind of job interview by asking you the question that is obvious so that you can answer that and then we can all relax and get on with it. So the obvious question, why did you write this book? Oh, it's actually, I mean, it is an obvious question, but there's not really an obvious answer to it in that. So I think I started thinking about the general idea when basically the lockdown kicked in in 2020, because I sure we'll get back to that in a moment. But so I, I basically grew up online. I've always been very online, even by the standards of my generation. So I was born in the early 90s. But, you know, so the lockdown kind of kicked in and I live by myself and I'm normally a very social person. And suddenly, you know, everything and everyone was online. People socialised on Zoom, they did pub quizzes on Zoom, they met up on house party and what have you. And I remember having this actually very strong, nearly physical reaction of thinking, A, I do not want to be part of this at all. And B, this is not my internet. And it felt really odd. I was like, you know, the internet has always been my home in a sense. And now everyone's here and I don't feel like I belong here anymore. So I think that was kind of the beginning of the idea and then the slightly less romantic follow-up to that was that over the summer a few months later my agent asked me if I maybe had any other ideas for books I may want to write and I thought well I've written two about politics I'm quite bored of that now what else can I write about and then that's when I kind of came back to that thought I had in sort of March of April and yeah here we are. So it was a strange experience Marie reading the book because I loved the book and it had a big impact on me and I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since I put it down but yet I kind of felt slightly voyeuristic I kind of felt this book really isn't for me I'm not really supposed to be reading it I mean in the book there are there are times when you talk about people who are 10 years younger than you as as being a completely different group who don't understand what it was like in the early days. And then you talk about people who are 10 years older than you and how they missed this amazing period that you were part of. And here I am, I'm, I'm 30 years older than you. So I absolutely don't want to suggest anyone should, 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 should not read this book. It's a fantastic book. But I did feel at certain times, I thought, is it for me? Is our conversation in a way pointless for me? Because there's so little that I understand of the world that you describe. 
Well, actually, my hope, obviously, so when I set out to write the book, I did kind of want to talk to, so for people who've not read it yet, I interviewed quite a lot of people who are broadly my age, by which I mean sort of like roughly born between 1985 and 1995. And I did kind of write with that generation in mind, because obviously I was talking about, as you said, a very specific set of experiences. But that being said, you know, I, I did also write it because I wanted people, you know, I wanted everyone else to kind of understand what it was like. And especially yeah, people both older and younger of saying, actually, you know, there was that period on the internet that lasted for around 15 years that really was unlike anything else. You know, and as I think I say in the intro, if you if you want to kind of understand the internet of today, you need to understand us as a micro generation and the other way around as well. I think if you want to understand us, you need to understand how we grew up and what we grew up with. Yeah. And, you know, I felt a lot of envy reading the book, actually. I mean, I'm an incredibly boring person because I've well, perhaps because I'm just born boring, but I've spent most of my adult life running organisations. And when you run organisations, you don't have time to do interesting things like having a great social life, taking interesting drugs, going flying around. Well, I, I've just had a boring life. And just reading your book, I felt like at times of people have told me about the years that they had on, in Ibiza, you know, out of their skull on, on various exciting drugs or people who've travelled around the world with a, with a rucksack for two years. And I just felt hopelessly inadequate in the face of these kind of exotic stories but then there's the poignancy because what you're describing this this wonderful island as it were that you lived on well it's been built over now it's no longer there it can't be visited no it can't and actually so on that point so that reminds me actually i don't think i put it in the book in the end for very boring reasons but when i when i started the music website that kind of put me on the path that led to me talking to you today so when i was 15 and i decided to create a music blog that was directly influenced by reading Please Kill Me, which is an oral history of the punk scene in New York in the kind of mid to late 70s, the CBGBs and all that scene, the Ramones, etc. And I remember reading about, so the word punk in the, the way that we use it now came from basically these kids in New York who saw that really interesting, really fun, compelling music scene kind of starting to happen and saying, okay, well, someone needs to do something about this and write about it. And so they set up this zine called Punk. And they scored an interview with Lou Reed somehow, God knows how. And they sort of turned up and they were like, hey, Lou, what's your favourite hamburger? <laughs> and obviously Lou hated it and I think told them to fuck off. And that was that. And they were very pleased with themselves. And I remember reading that again at 15 and thinking, A, I am you know, green with envy at those people because actually I would love to have lived that kind of life. But then also did have that feeling of saying, but actually you know what, the internet can sort of allow me to do a similar thing. And it still felt like a bit of a sandbox and still felt like I thought, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to start my own music website. I'm 15. I'm going to recruit other teenagers. And then we'll just try to interview bands and see where that takes us. And, and I hope that comes through in the book. But what really was different, I think, about that internet compared to the internet we have now was, again, the kind of sense of freedom and the sense of, yeah, again, what's the worst that can happen? And yeah, and I do think that's something that is sadly gone, even for people who are kind of young today. So I want to get in in a moment to that, this question of the, the way in which we should understand the internet today through the prism of its early days and what's been lost and what is still there. But but there is a strong kind of autobiographical element to the book, Marie. And, and I don't know what to do with it in relation to my daughter, because my daughter loves great writing. She's 10 years old. And I, I'm afraid I'm not going to let her read it, because the problem is it kind of suggests that you can do all sorts of incredibly kind of risky, wacky, slightly irresponsible stuff. And in the end, it's fine, because it actually 
just enables you to grow into a full and exciting person who can write fantastic books. I I kind of know that's true, but I, I'm not sure I want her to know that. <laughs> well, I, I think I was cautious to say in the book, I think on several occasions that, you know, I, I do very much consider myself to be one of the lucky ones. And as you said, I think, you know, and I feel incredibly lucky in that I did many, many stupid things online or in real life when I was a teenager, when I was in my early 20s, and I've got out of it mostly unscathed. But equally, you know, I think lots of people didn't. And I do think occasionally as well, like, it feels a bit like being kind of like lost in a, in a city as a kid of thinking, actually, I got really lucky because I always somehow managed to take the right turns. But what would have happened if I'd befriended different groups of people or got different interests or been bullied a bit too hard or like there are so many ways in which it could have gone terribly wrong and and including sort of, you know, in ways that look, I think, quite glamorous from the outside. So and there's someone I interviewed in the book who I can't name and I didn't name them in the book either, but who I know quite, you know, randomly and who's, I could tell was quite famous and I kind of wanted to chat to them, say, you know, what, what's it like being internet famous? And actually I can say here, I think the gender's fine. And and, you know, and he said, oh, it's, you know, it's actually terrible. I don't, I don't have a social life and I, I don't really go out to things anymore. And I don't go out to events and I don't meet up with my friends or with my partner in bars or in cafes because I just have all these obsessive fans. And, you know, and, and, and I'm not being mean here when I say that actually by sort of mainstream media standards, that's not even someone who is that famous, but he's just been crushed by that. And, and I did hear several stories of people, again, whose lives have been made arguably just quite bad from the internet. So, so, so the lesson is not entirely, oh, you know, the internet was just brilliant all the time, but it just had the potential to be, I suppose. And yeah, and I was one of the, one of the survivors and I, I do, again, feel good about it, but also incredibly aware that a lot of it was down to sheer luck. So yeah, no, maybe wait a bit before your daughter reads it. <laughs> now let, let's, let's move to the kind of core of the book. And I took so many notes as I read it, and and there's some things that you express so beautifully that I'm not going to try to paraphrase them. I'm going to repeat back to you a couple of the quotes and just ask you to elaborate on them because they're, they're such wonderful little bits of writing. So you, here's one quote. A real person creates an online version of herself. Then the online version gets to decide who the real person is. It's almost like poetry. So tell me, elaborate upon that wonderful idea. Oh, God. I mean, sadly for everyone involved here, I definitely write better than I speak, uh, but I'll give it a stab. So I think so. what, what I sort of meant by that, and again, and that's very much, I, that's something I leave as a kind of question mark in the book, and I try to get to a definitive answer, but failed. So I mean, so, you know, from a very young age, I so I started my first blog when I was 12. So I have kind of been writing in one form or the other about my day-to-day -day life on the internet since I was 12. And what I mean, so so I think, you know, in real life, there's obviously an element of that, of when you meet people, especially, let's say, new people, people who you want to impress, you, you will try to be a sort of, you know, slightly funnier, slightly more streamlined, cooler, etc. version of yourself, because that's how human beings work, because we're social beings, ultimately. But I think what's different with the internet is that you're never entirely yourself in the way that in person, if you're just surrounded by a group of your very close friends, you're probably going to be the most authentic version of yourself that exists. Whereas I think on the internet, especially in places like, so blogs at the time, and obviously now Twitter, Instagram, etc., even WhatsApp groups to an extent, you do always have that sense, I think, of having an audience and always having to perform to an audience. And the problem is that that is also that happens to be the, the main way in which I've kind of 
expressed myself again since before I was even a teenager. And the problem is the more you do that, and I think that's the example I give in the book of saying, you know, if something happens to me, something silly or annoying happens to me, I'll usually, and this is not even a really conscious process, I, I will try to turn it into a funny or witty or whatever else sort of anecdote that I'll tweet about, just because that's what I do and that's how I work. That's how my brain works. But then the problem is actually, if I can't manage to find an entertaining way to talk about that stupid anecdote, then I'm not going to post about it. And then actually it becomes more likely that I'll forget about it entirely because if I post about it, people may reply, we'll talk about it, we'll get into it, etc. So I think that my memory as a result is entirely shaped by what I can get away with posting to an audience and what I can't. And as a result, I've just been shaped, I think, entirely. Again, you know, what, what interest did I have at some point, but then when I tried to write about it, so on my blog or tweet about it, et cetera, no one cared. So I sort of gave up on that. You know, where else would I be if some of those things actually had been picked up instead, et cetera? So I think, again, it's, it's a completely symbiotic relationship, I suppose, between who I am on a very internal level and also what I post online, because what I post online sort of becomes who I am over time. Yeah, no, and I think that there's so much more to be said, isn't there, about the relationship between identity formation in the real world and identity formation in the internet and what and what they have in common and, and what is different about them. Because I think that process whereby we try on various masks and then at certain points the audience applauds a mask and then we wear the mask every day and then one day we can't remove it anymore is just part of how it is we become human beings. But it's something that is accelerated in the internet but also in the internet there's a possibility to rip that mask off but as you as that quote implies often your public as it were don't want you to you're kind of in some ways trapped by it let's take one other quote and then i want to get into a kind of what seems to me to be a kind of underlying story in the book which is in a sense the strengths of the internet are then at the same time the seeds of its destructiveness but here's a second quote i picked out you say the problem with the internet is that we are either giving a best man speech in front of every single person we know or in front of a crowd hiding in darkness. I love that quote because of this thing that I've often thought, which is, you know, in the real world, we grow up and we understand subtle distinctions. So I understand there are things that I can do in my bedroom that I wouldn't do in my living room. There are things I can do in front of my wife that I wouldn't do in front of my friends. There are things I can do in front of my friends that I wouldn't do in front of a stranger. And there are things I can do in the street that I wouldn't be able to do in a shop. So we just, we are socialized into these very subtle distinctions about what is and is not acceptable behavior. The internet, we were cast adrift, weren't we, to, to in a way make up those rules, but they weren't always <laughs> without a general agreement as to them. Oh, you yeah, know, absolutely. And I think I think what makes it harder as well is that you can't... So let's take Twitter, for example. And I know what... I can't remember how many users Twitter has in total, but it's definitely a few hundred million. On a very basic level, the human brain was not built in a way that allows me to think every single time I post something on Twitter, oh, this could theoretically be seen by hundreds of millions of people, right? You know, that that's not how we think because otherwise we'd go insane. So I think it's kind of that as well. There's that base level between how how we function on a basic level and also how, you know, the internet can share stuff. And, and, and also, you know, it's, it's a game of odds, isn't it, at the end of the day, because it is incredibly unlikely that even one million people will ever see one of my tweets. And yet sometimes it happens. So in the book, I use what I call the opera singer conundrum. 
um, which is that so in my old flat in Vauxhall in South London, I used to live just below an opera singer who used to sing with a window open. And when I first moved in, it was generally just unbelievably charming. I felt like I was in a Wes Anderson movie. It was delightful. So after a few months, I actually got quite bored of it. And I ended up tweeting about it a bit, you know, very sort of like complaining in a half serious manner, I suppose. And it was totally fine. And I did that for a few months. And then it kind of became a running joke on my account. And yet at some point, and I'm not really sure how it happened, one of the tweets maybe got retweeted a bit, something happened and found its way to the corner of Twitter where opera singers like to meet clearly and and chat, etc. And they got incredibly angry at me you know, for dissing an opera singer. And I think my favourite tweet is someone saying, well, you know, how, how dare you complain about someone offering you for free what people pay a lot of money to listen to. But I that, that still kind of struck me because it, it felt a bit silly, obviously, and I sort of apologised and it was fine because no one was really in the wrong and no one was in the right. Because, of course, again, I don't go through life thinking, oh, if I were to, for example, talk about this to friends, you know, there is no world in which some actual professional opera singers would be able to overhear this and then take offence. That that would be incredibly unlikely. And that's obviously because we transpose the way we think and we work to the internet. So then when I tweeted that, it never even occurred to me, really, that opera singers were there. But then on the other side, you know, from their point of view, I clearly turned up on someone's timeline, very clearly dissing the group of people that person was a part of. And of course, that must have been incredibly annoying. And so again, I think a lot of the friction online, especially these days on Twitter, Facebook, to a lesser extent, is created by the fact that, again, it's not just an etiquette problem. It's just that, again, our brains are not adapted, I think, cannot possibly adapt to all the possibilities in which the internet can go right and wrong. Hmm. No, I thought it was such a well-made point, and it reminded me of a friend a few years ago who said something disparaging about about Liverpool fans and the fact that if you're a Liverpool fan, it's not just that your team's better as a football team, but somehow that you're a better human being to being a Liverpool fan. And then somehow this got ended up being kind of sent to somebody in a kind of Hillsborough group, you know, and it and it felt offensive to them. And this is the point that you make, which is that you write for one audience and for one purpose. And then that, that bit of content is then taken to somebody else who's in a very different headspace. I thought what was really powerful, as you just said, Marie, is that nobody's right. This is just a kind of function of, of how the internet works and, and how difficult it is to adapt. I'm not sure we can ever. I mean, a world in which we always thought that everything we said was being said to everybody seems to be a world in which we end up as Trappists. But anyway, another really powerful point. Now, one of the kind of rumbling themes through the book, in a sense, is this idea of unintended consequences or a kind of related idea, which is that it is exactly that which made the internet so special in those years for you, that that kind of decade that you write about so vividly is, is what, in a sense, has now led it to being something very, very different and in many ways kind of quite quite problematic. So, so for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. The wonderful thing about the internet for you in those 10 years was that you could form associations with people all around the world who shared your quite niche interests in indie bands, for example. That then, of course, is exactly the same thing which enables people with really appalling ideas and desires to connect with people who normalize their appalling beliefs and desires. These are these are just two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Oh, they are, absolutely. And I think that's one of the both fascinating things and terrible things about the internet, which is that a lot of its rules are entirely neutral. 
And it's such a weird, so I think one of the points actually doing the interviews for the book that really struck me and stayed with me was talking to Io Dodds, who's a reporter who kind of specializes a lot on online, busy online stuff in general. In her point, she was saying, but actually, you know, when we write about, you know, the kind of far right and their forums and the QAnon people and the whoever, the racist, misogynist, etc., who kind of gather in dark corners of the internet, she was like, you know, what people forget to mention is that they're just having quite a nice time. Like everyone else online, they are just people who have found kindred spirits and they're having a lovely time together talking about their special interests. It's just annoying that that special interest happens to be fascism. But fundamentally what they're doing is no different at all from, again, any other group or special interest. You know, it's one of those I'd never thought about it that way at all. And it's kind of reshaped the way I understand, I think, this community. So it's not just... Because I think the stakes become a lot lower as well online. If you have some, let's say, fascist beliefs in real life, it would take such a large step to try and find your kind of local fascist group. I don't, I don't even know how, what you'd call it, you know, and kind of go to presumably illicit meetings with really dodgy characters, etc. You know, I think that's such an amount of effort and there's such an amount of danger associated with it whereas now you could just find you know your corner of reddit and then you make friends from that and again in the same way that yeah I loved guitar bands and then I made friends who loved guitar bands and that was that and and yes so so again I think all of those structures are just fundamentally neutral and also human nature remains the same I think across sort of again different interests and behaviors and it's not actually and and to an extent and it would normally never occur to me to kind of come to the defense of big tech, etc. But it is still not entirely obvious to me that that is a problem that can be solved, because if people can gather somewhere, they probably will, you know, and, and find it's probably not ideal that if they're doing it on Facebook or, you know, sort of mainstream websites. But fundamentally, if those structures can exist, they probably will and will be recreated and recreated and recreated. Yes, but it's another example, isn't it, of how we have a set of kind of regulations, rules and norms, which just don't really work in the context of the internet. Let, let's take another example of a strength, which then can also lead to kind of be pathological. So what, you know, one of the things that's really poignant about your account is the way in which people were able to be themselves wholly. And also your fascination with and it and it, it's not puerile i don't think i mean sometimes you admit yourself it becomes a little so but but generally it's a genuine empathy you you love to read these very intimate and personal accounts that people give of their lives and that's one of the incredible charms of the internet is that ability to be fully open and not ashamed of people being open about you know their mental health or, or their sexuality or whatever but then other sides of that include an expectation then that everybody will be as open as this. The almost the kind of requirement that people have to be this open, and also this kind of pervasive narcissistic exhibitionism that we've come to associate with the internet. Oh yes, well, I, so I was having a similar chat for a different interview I did about the book, where quite awkwardly the interviewer asked and said, "You know, is it not again? Is it not very narcissistic? This kind of era of the internet and your generation, etc." And I actually didn't have much to say because I was actually, you know, probably is. I've been taking selfies for as long as I remember, I can remember. And, you know, and it used to be so much effort, let me tell you, sort of, you know, 2004, 2005 to take selfies. I had to borrow my dad's digital camera and then find the cable to connect it to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, sure. You know, I I don't really have any counter to offer. I mean, the only one I suppose is that the internet's probably just democratized narcissism because we've always had, I think, anyone with the money 
back in the day would commission painters, you know, to paint for hours and hours and hours to get portraits of themselves. So clearly that's an impulse that's always been there. It's just the means, I think, have been given to the people now. What you object to, though, it seems to me, Marie, is that, is that it's become so bland that that kind of exhibitionism, all that willingness to open ourselves up has now turned into people taking selfies of themselves, wearing kind of branded clothes in their kitchens and all this kind of stuff. So your objection at the end is just that it's become very dull. Oh God, it really has. And it makes me really sad. And it's actually so that (laughs) there's, was it about half or a third of a chapter on influences and kind of influencer culture. And I think it's the bit I edited the most in the book because it was so mean. The first draft was so mean. (laughs) And then I had to go back and edit it. And then I read it again. I was like, no, you know what? That's still too mean. And I had to go back in and basically tone it down again, which is not something I'm incredibly proud of. But no, so I think the difference is that so I think there's narcissism sorry for its own sake and narcissism for a purpose right in that I think that I will always defend I think basic attention seeking on the internet because I do think that actually it is not a bad thing to want attention and especially and I think especially in those years people who spent a lot of time online were more likely to perhaps you know sort of never have had a boyfriend or a girlfriend maybe you know, they didn't have many friends at school or in general, etc. I'm busy describing myself here in my teenage years. Um, but, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's an, the, the most human thing there is really to actually want kind of benevolent attention. So I think that's not something that worries me. I think w- what I find distasteful, and it's not, and again, it's not necessarily their fault, is the kind of trying to market yourself. So it's, I think there's a difference between narcissism and against self marketization to coin a very clunky phrase. But the difference here is that that's why I had to go back, I think, and tone down that chapter, because ultimately the, you know, the, the structures of the internet have changed. Because even if I'd wanted to become some influencer when I was 15, I couldn't have because that was not an option and there was actually no money online. And a lot of the fun things I did, you know, I did many things thanks to the internet. None of them ever got me a penny. So I was just doing it for the fun of it. So would I have tried to sell clothes or get free clothes, etc., or get brand partnerships if that been an option offered to me at 16 years old? Maybe, I have no idea. So I think it has changed the game that the prizes have got bigger Basically, so and, and it reminds me of an episode of Community, which I don't know if you've watched it before, the American sitcom, if anyone listening has, but very long story short, there's this very fun episode set on a university campus where they're meant to do a fun game of paintball and whoever wins meant to get some silly prize. Anyway, and then I think the prize becomes this incredible, so I think it's a, a year of free c- credits or something, whatever, but anyway, amazing prize. And then it turns into this thing where people nearly fight to the death to win that prize over several days and the campus becomes a war zone. And in a weird way, I think that's kind of what's happened to the internet. You know, you you do now have the chance to actually become a multimillionaire overnight if you pose the right thing, if you get enough followers, etc. And I think that's kind of made people a bit mad, just the possibility that you can get that in a way that my generation didn't have that. At most, again, you could get, you know, I, I felt like I'd won the universe because... I basically tricked some record labels into sending me free CDs every month to review on my blog. And I thought, you know, this is it, king of the world. So I think, again, the prize is getting bigger by virtue of big corporations kind of invading the internet has made that culture just less fun and less light, I suppose. It's, yeah, feels heavier now. So it's a kind of digital gold rush. And I think the thing about a gold rush is that, you know, most people will not get any gold 
And so you need to enjoy the process of panning for gold so that at least if you don't make, if you don't find any gold, you won't regret the fact that you tried. And uh, I guess the sad thing about some of the influencing you see is you think this is not a good way to spend your life. This is all based on the fact that one, you know, you will take off and you will earn lots of money because otherwise it doesn't look like a terribly good thing to be doing with your life to be. And and the, the sad examples you give of of people who pretend to be influencers to, to win credibility. They advertise things they're not actually being paid to advertise in order to create the impression that they're influencers. That's, I thought that was rather poignant. Now, I want to, Emery, with, with and I'm going to do this as quickly as I possibly can, but it, the book reminded me also of a kind of way of thinking about the world of theory that I've used for many, many, many years. And, and the theory, in brief, is that when you think of how we are motivated and if you think of how, how society is organized, there are really three kind of powerful forces. One is the force of authority. So, you know, we do what we're told. The second is the force of belonging. You know, we do what we think we should do because of the kind of person we are, the kind of club we belong to, the values that we have. And the third is we do what we want to do, what gives us pleasure. I don't mean necessarily selfishness, but just what, what gives us a kind of sensual, whether it's holiday or whatever it might be, ambitions, whatever. So you have these three forces, hierarchy, let's call it solidarity and individualism. And I would argue, but this is not the subject of this conversation, but I would argue that the most dynamic organizations and places articulate each of these and balance them quite effectively. Now, I think what's interesting about the early days of the internet was it was a place that was held together with this combination of collectivism and individualism. And hierarchy was largely absent. And why I mean hierarchy, I mean big power. I mean the big power of corporations, the big power of the state, people who are finding ways of forcing you to, getting you to do things because they want you to do them. And this is the poignancy of the book. In the end, and this is something that I've argued in lots of other contexts, that wonderful almost paradise where it's collectivism and individualism held in a wonderful balance, you know, a slightly chaotic balance, but it's a wonderful creative balance. It can't sustain itself because sooner or later the tensions between individualism and collectivism lead to people saying, well, we need rules here or we need someone to give some structure here or just, or just power sees a vacuum and the opportunity to take it. So I... I concluded at the end of the book that what you were describing was a period that, that may occur in the context of other technologies, other eras, but can never happen again in the internet. It is when the power of collectivism and belonging and the power of individualism and self-expression are free of the overbearing hand of hierarchy. Am I over-theorising? <laughs> uh, no, that's actually one review of the book uh, criticised it for not putting in enough theory. So I'm now like, actually, is, is there a way I can just scribble basically what you've just added somewhere in the book? That's <laughs> a, a very neat point. No, so I, I completely agree. And I think so like two more things I'd add as well on kind of less, I guess, theory-heavy themes because I'm not really a theory person. So the first one is... The fact that I think all of that as well could work because the internet felt like it was constantly in flux in that. So, you know, we, we were always moving from platform to platform, social media platform, social media platform, etc. But, you know, went from blogs and forums to MSN Messenger to MySpace and Twitter and Instagram and, 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 and. So I think the fact that it was moving along meant that, you know, everything would remain fresh and you had to be very proactive. I think you had to have got a proactive approach to your internet life, which weirdly was quite healthy I think so that's the first thing and I think the second one which 
is probably going to sound like stating the obvious, is I think technological advances kind of killed the fun internet as well, because the dynamics will always change really fundamentally, you know, depending on whether you can only be on the internet in your house, on the one computer in your house or in your bedroom or wherever, and having a smartphone and having the internet with you at all times, whether you just can't leave the internet at all. And because I, I remember, so I, I went back through my old blogs to write the book and, and I have such good memories of those years. And I thought, you know, everyone was so pleasant. We're having a lovely time. And you know what? People were actually rancid, you know, to me, about me. And I, I very much defended myself and I was rancid back and we were horrible to each other. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting. Like, is it, is it just that I'm too nostalgic for those years that, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about this? But actually then I thought, no, I think genuinely the difference is that I could leave all of that behind when I left my bedroom because I could have those flame wars online and then I would go out and meet my friends and I would not think about say for, you know, six, seven hours at a time. And then I'd come back home and that was that. And I think genuinely smartphones are also what kind of killed the dream because then the barriers started coming down slowly but surely between real life and internet life. And then obviously internet life could never quite remain that wonderland because it'd been invaded by all the real people. Yeah. Well, that's a great thought to end on. I, Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet is a wonderful, it's a mixture of a, a fantastic insight into a lost era, but also an excavation of why the internet is what it is and the impact it is having on us and uh, how we need to think deeply about it. Marie, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm really, really glad you liked it. So maybe we are fish, and the internet is the water we can no longer feel. But we do need to think about what it is, what it is not, how maybe even now it could be different. Having read this wonderfully powerful and generous book, I'm reminded that the internet is a great servant, but a negligent and sometimes bullying master. And for that insight alone, I'm grateful to have read it. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.